thank you. I'm so glad to join you this morning. I'm in town because I was at Belmont University for the first part of the week, uh, which, by the way, first time on campus, first time knowing that the leadership team, uh, y'all have one of the most amazing assets in the entire United States in Belmont University, and I hope that they continue on the path that they're on because it's a great path, and it's a unique path. One of the things that they are have, have defined and this comes out of their Christian heritage and their Christian conviction is that community development should be at the core of the entire university experience. So for every college within Belmont, they wanna know how is it that these students are being prepared for a world where those students are gonna be entering into the brokenness of American or global society and having an effective response. So the Hope Summit is two days to pull together thought leaders from around the US with the leaders of the colleges to map out what does this mean to, to center sort of community development and, and Christ at the center of community revitalization globally. There's nobody else doing this in the entire United States and y'all should be proud and I hope supportive of them. So I'm coming to you this morning from Portland, Oregon, but you know, I won't bring my personal problems up. Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I bring you greetings from your dysfunctional future. Uh, we, we are now a, a, a very, very large nonprofit, and we are in a privileged position to be at the, in, in you know, closed door conversations with, from the governor on down. And I promise you that it's worse than you think. It, and it's, it's distressing. Uh, and I, th I do believe it's a harbinger for much of America, but that's not really my topic, but I want you to know that if you're afraid of what you see, I mean, you probably should be. And it's, it's a growing, well, I don't know if it's gonna be growing. I think perhaps, well, we'll come back to that. Uh, there, are, there is hope for communities, especially when individuals and groups take control. It's not that government doesn't belong at the table. It's the government shouldn't head the table. So when you and your neighbors and community groups are heading the discussion, leading the discussion, government can find its place in the discussion. It works a whole lot better for all of us. So that's what we're finding. And I encourage you to do the, do the same. So what am I talking about? I was in the technology industry for 25 years and living in a very Franklin-like place outside of Portland, uh, really where I'm from originally, even though we lived all over the world, we kind of came back to finish raising our kids in this uh, quasi-suburban or rural environment just 25 mi miles out of the city. And the community that I was raised in had gone during my lifetime from an upper middle class or middle class white community to one of the most diverse communities in the entire United States. In Rockwood, which is two miles from my front door, there are 90 language groups spoken at home in a two square mile area. 90 language groups. Anybody know of a more diverse place? I speak around the entire US and people are like, no, I thought we were diverse. But uh, it was also a community that I would just drive through like everybody else. Like it's in the news, there's a lot of violence. There's no good restaurants. I'm on my way to the airport. Um, but one morning at about 5.15, I was getting up. A friend was going to be picking me up. We were going to go lift. 
I was quite a bit younger then. Uh, <laughs> and there was a knock at the door. And for any of you who live in you know, some of these traces and roads, when there's a knock at your door at 515, that's not good news, right? And it was a young man, a Latino guy, Ronaldo. He had been dumped in the bushes, the rose bushes, in front of my house because he was in a drug deal that had gone bad. And he was like 14 or 15 years old, scared, all cut up from the roses, and wanted a ride home. And I was like, no, we're, I'll call the police. And he's like, oh, can't call the police. Well, you know, we're out in the middle of nowhere. And my buddy was coming to pick me up to go lifting. And as it turns out, we were practically driving by his home, his apartment. And so we're like, get in the back. We'll take you home, kid. And we drove to what I knew to be a neighborhood I had actually walked in and been in when I was a boy. But now his apartment was... Uh, derelict. There was a strip club right next door. It, we, I, it, now I know it was the home of the human sexual trafficking business in big part of Portland, narcotics industry. This kid had no chance. And as we sort of drove away, I thought, ah, that's deeply disturbing. I wonder who is doing something about Rockwood. So I know all the leaders. I kind of, over the next few weeks, introduced that conversation. And the answer was, Nobody. The mayor thought the same thing I did, which was, hey, all these people came here because Portland has a historic policy of driving poverty, driving brown and black people out of the city into the collar counties, collar cities. Um, and my city, which was a collar city that has Rockwood, also had a policy of we just, the way to solve poverty is just drive them out and then go somewhere else. That's really the policy. Which was hard to hear because it's more subtle than that normally. But it's really the conclusion that I drew. And I thought, well, maybe they don't understand. The people who are in charge don't understand. So I pulled some numbers. Um, I'm an MBA guy, so I did, I did the kind of analysis you might expect. And I learned that this was Oregon's poorest community, that the life expectancy in this community is a full 10 to 15 years shorter than five miles down the road in downtown Portland. Now, I'm telling you all this not because I don't, I don't think you should care about Rockwood, but every American city has a Rockwood. Nashville has a Rockwood. And they're typically found outside the downtown core. They're typically found in collar cities or collar counties. All of us old guys think about poverty as an urban problem. It's a suburban problem and has been for a long time. So, and that's going to get, that, that trend's going to accelerate. So, Nashville's going to get richer, 100% predict that, and then the problems will start to be, emerge in the Collar Cities and Keller Counties in, in this area, if they haven't already. I'm sure they have. So we ran the numbers. We determined that this is, this is just an absolutely distressed community, and nobody knew. Nobody knew. Nobody cared. And I finally just sort, sort of through a process in my own spirituality and my own relationship with Christ, realized that at least at some level, I'm going to start to make this problem my problem, which was a strategic mistake because it screwed up the rest of the 10 years of my life and brought me to talking to you today. Uh, you know, we had a dramatic kind of call, and I don't even think that's the right word. I think cattle shoot is probably the right word because God drug me into a deep commitment to this community that is now 10 years in 
and, and wildly successful. But I would have never sacrificed into this community if it weren't for Christ making it clear that my wife and I were to lead, be the point of the spear. So what did we do? We, we, we thought, well, I, I, I was at an inflection point in my life. I was done with my tech career. We were, Lynn and I had always thought about maybe being involved in missions globally at some point uh, as our kids were, were, were leaving home. And all of us, she got a, a master's in public health from Oregon Health Sciences University, so she became more expert than I am. And we thought, well, maybe we're supposed to kind of get involved. And then the, the phone rang, and, and I was recruited to move to Asia to run a major NGO there, non, non-governmental nonprofit, uh, for a couple of years that was working on poverty issues. And I mentioned that because it changed my perspective. And in coming back to the U.S., I thought, we really, there really are strategies for dealing with community systemic pro- poverty that are working in other parts of the world, but that we really aren't doing here. So maybe we can start to apply that. So we created the Community Development Corporation of Oregon, uh, rel- a relatively grandiose title, uh, but nobody else had it. So I thought, well, let's let's put our stake, uh, the, the, the stakes of the tent out big from the beginning. Uh, what is a CDC? It's a form of nonprofit federally recognized to become one. You don't apply for anything. You just declare you are one and you put it in your articles of incorporation and they say, good enough. And then there are special doors that you can open for funding at the federal level that you wouldn't otherwise. You guys, all of you could become CDCs this afternoon if you want to. Uh, I, so we formed a CDC and, to, and with the concept that because poverty is a systemic thing that incorporates all the various sectors of, of society, whether it's business or the church or healthcare, education system, um, the uh, governmental systems, that for a place like Rockwood to be as cratered as it is, how, all the systems have to fail at the same time. And, and it's an interlocking failure of systems. Is that making sense? So our solution should be a systemic solution. We should be focusing not on why are these kids hungry? And why, how can we get backpacks to them uh, before school starts uh, uh, with, with supplies in it? To what environment is causing these families to be, to failings as badly as they are? And of course, that is both hard answers like government systems or education systems. It's also soft answers like the quality of the family and are people turning their hearts to Christ? You have to have both the head and the hard or the hard and the soft parts to be working all at the same time, or else you probably won't be moving the needle. Therefore, we created this basically a holding company for those who are in finance or in, in, you know, in, in M&A kind of things, which is my background. Let's just create an environment where we could have subtending both for-profit and nonprofit corporations uh, working together in their various sectors uh, and, and see if we can't move the needle. Now, you, you should be thinking about 10 years on something like that. It's not gonna happen overnight. We're in our 10th year. I'll be darned if it didn't work. So we're actually seeing transformation now in Oregon's poorest community and I'm now blessed to start talking about it in other places. But it wasn't an easy journey. When we first opened the doors, you know, there, I found people flooded in. The first time I spoke at a church, we were like, does anybody want to help? And 
there was a line for people to sign up. And I thought, well, this is going to be a lot easier than I thought it was. <laughs> but what was happening was there was such a tremendous pent-up demand for somebody to do something that the second we said, it's us, everybody said, well, I'll, I'll bring $5. Well, that, that was very invigorating, but within a year that it all dissipated. Anybody ever do a startup and you're like, okay, now the real work begins. And we began to just talk to our neighbors in as many languages as we could figure out how to do it. Starting with absolute zero, one of the things we did was gather neighbors at an apartment complex and we put a map up on the wall of, of our area and we gave everybody three dots, a red, a yellow, and a green. And the yellow was, where do you live? The green was, where has something great happened or life happens for your family? And the red is, where has something bad happens or you feel threatened? And so people would put those dots up. We still have the map. It's now covered with dots. And there's also clear places where, where the pockets of, of bad was and the pockets of good. And it began a, conversa it began a conversation. Uh, no agenda. We brought no power. We brought no money. We just began a conversation with folks. And solutions or issues started to coalesce. Leaders started to arise. And we're like, okay, we can build on that. To this day, I think we've added up about, uh, about 9,000 adults that we've engaged in facilitated formal conversations over 10 years. And that is actually the backbone of our entire organization. I'm sure there's a conversation going on today with one of my staff folks with people from some pocket of, of cultural specificity, like Tongans or re Ukrainian refugees or... Uh, displaced white people, it, and they're talking about specific issues. It's become the way the whole community organizes. And from that humble beginning, we began to develop some strategies, look for some funding, and really it wasn't. We, we made a lot of just slow, steady progress for a few years, but here's what we started to realize. There was a quiet backlash forming in our community and it took me a long time to get my brain around this, but what I finally realized was there are people making money off of poverty who don't want it to change. We call them the poverteers. And the poverteers are, are the slumlords. Maybe they're the, the politicians who aren't straight. They might be people who are running storefronts like a cash uh, uh, cash credit business or a, um, a pawn shop. They're not bad people, but these businesses don't, there's a, I don't know, is there a pawn shop in downtown Franklin anywhere? I haven't seen one. I mean, there's certain businesses that only exist in deep, deeply distressed communities. And, uh, and, and they actually were starting to quietly push against us. Eventually, our own city tried to shut us down. And I tell that story in this book, God intervened at the literally one day before they were going to be successful. Um, we fought back. We won. We pushed back the forces that were trying to stop the progress. And our little organization celebrated. And this is going to back to about three, four years ago. Uh, but we were depleted. We were tired. We were kind of pissed off. And we're kind of like, I don't know if we can keep doing this. We're even talking about shutting it down. And then there was this thing that happened. COVID, anybody? <laughs> when COVID hit, our 
state health department called us and they said, we know where the epicenter of COVID deaths are gonna be in Oregon. They're gonna be in Rockwood. And we've been, we've been asking ourselves, who has the capacity to quarterback the play for your part of the state? And certainly the city wasn't interested. Uh, certainly the major hospitals were very disconnected from the needs of this community. So they said, we think your organization should quarterback the play for the community. And we're like, well, how many truckloads of money do you have? And they're like, lots, lots of truckloads of money. Where do we bring it? And seriously, we were funded now for the first time in a major way to get out hundreds of thousands of, of doses of, of uh, you know, vaccine and, and food distribution, all the interventions you've seen on the news, we did it all in our little community and hired and, and, and all of a sudden we were thinking, well, I guess this is why we were put in this community in the first place, was to be, was to save what I'm sure turned out to be hundreds of lives. Well, now that the COVID money's dried up, some of you know nonprofits that made a, made a bundle uh, and, and expanded and now it's kind of all dried up so they're whining at you, or, you know, fundraising letters um, and, we, weren't able, we, we were able to put in capacity of leadership management at the top during those years that today has continued to expand us. So today we're a $7 million a year organization with 50 employees and we're actually calling the shots on community transformation. We're bigger than the government and we're more influential than the government. So now the government is at a table that we convene and and it's actually helping uh, good agents within the government to uh, use the resources they've got, which we need, without bringing to us the frameworks that they've also got that we don't need. And it's been helpful and I think it's gonna accelerate. So I, I went real fast because um, it's all in the book. I hope you buy it. I hope you buy a hundred of them. Uh, I actually brought, I think I have like five with me. So if anybody wants one, I'd be happy to just uh, let you walk out the door with it. Um, uh, and, and I do believe it's a model for other parts of the U.S. that might want to also tackle their distressed communities. So I'm now blessed to have Wes as someone who's working with me to get the word out. And um, we're getting the word out. I wanted to go very quickly because I recognize this topic is one that is really hot and that there's a lot of information in the media. And I just wanted a, an extended time for Q&A. Not that I'm the expert, I, but I have my opinions and uh, we have our experiences. And I'm happy to share those with you. I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything, but, but, I, but I do wanna know what does this bring up in maybe one of your, your minds? about the issue. Yes, sir.
That's a great question. For those who couldn't hear, is there an exit plan for something like this, or do you just stay in a distressed community forever, or, or expand or move on? So going back to these community conversations and the fact that we were identifying leaders, we have a formal way now for the leaders to be taking over the work. And there are about 70 or 80 who are just live in the neighborhoods who are running our various initiatives. By the way, I didn't mention really what these initiatives are. You might still be like, so what do you guys actually do? Uh, all right. Uh, three, three major areas of practice. One is housing. So we have uh, affordable housing that we're building. We have a 75-unit shelter for families that are transitioning from the street into their own permanent housing. Uh, we had 220 families last year find permanent housing through that, that uh, shelter. That's our housing portfolio. In the economic development portfolio, we have a, a food system collaborative that is, now has about 180 farmers that are farming in the land immediately adjacent to our area, creating income, creating new uh, ways to get to market with frequently uh, foods that are only grown in other parts of the world. And there's actually a huge market in the US for some of these culturally specific foods. And they're starting to make a living. We have a, a mentoring, a coaching, and teaching for a system for entrepreneurs with 300 in and at, a workforce development center, and a micro enterprise, a micro loan fund. So we're, a, we're actually doing lending now uh, because access to capital is probably one of the biggest problems that entrepreneurs have who are from non mainstream uh, communities. So I talked about our housing portfolio, our economic development portfolio, and then the third is our community health portfolio. So we have community health workers, um, 14 separate uh, cultures and languages on staff who do nothing but relate to their communities with health information, with um, uh, ac get, uh, increasing access to the existing clinics that are in our area, and um, uh, working on things like mental health, behavioral health, and, and so forth. So it does, it does translate to real social programs that you've probably heard of before or experienced before. What's, what I'm trying to get across, though, is that there's no government entity involved. We're, this is a, a group of friends and a group of neighbors who have sort of self-organized to deliver community development. So how do you get out of it, or is, or is this a permanent thing? We are not trying to create a new institution that makes money off of poverty. Uh, we, we've already covered that, that that's what we were trying to displace. Um, we are actually seeing uh, income levels rise, violence levels drop. Um, we're starting to see literacy levels rise a little bit. Definitely much more community engagement, much more uh, business activity. I mean, the, you know, 300 micro, micro entrepreneurs in just a community of 40,000, it's a lot of people. And it can, it can make a lot of difference in a community. So. I, I suspect we'll always be at the system level, um, helping make sure that things stay on track, but at the service delivery level or the ground level, um, we hope to spin out these different efforts as, as we go. We've already spun two out, and there are about three more that are ready for, for takeoff. Yes, sir.
That's a great question. So for those who didn't hear, you know, with the dark forces that are coming against us and coming against, uh, you know, quite, all right, let, I'll, I'll use the term the shalom community or the beloved community, you know, going back to Isaiah, going back to many spots in Christ's ministry, the idea of a shalom community is one where there's peace, where there's prosperity, it's, even, it's not evenly shared, but it's available to all where there is justice for the poor, where the, 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 the stranger is welcomed, where the, um, uh, and, and Christ's name is named. That's the Shalom community. And obviously a, a, a heavenly vision. We, we don't, we all know we're not gonna achieve that now, but we can work towards it. And Isaiah 60 and 61 is just an incredible model of what a functioning community could look like. I'd encourage you to pray into it and read it in your own time. So we're after the Shalom community, but there are lots of forces who are not, and they um, have to be confronted at some point. At some point, they, they uh, uh, will they'll weasel their way around, they'll hide in the shadows, they'll have quiet conversations in the background to stop things, but at some point, they gotta be called out. And that's what happened actually in our ex experience with our city, Gresham, that was, we, we actually were leasing a, a huge community center from the city and running all of our programs. And one day the mayor, who we, we now know, actually wanted it torn down so that he could personally redevelop it um, as a high density apartment complex. Even though he didn't personally own the land, he had also worked out a way to make sure that the land transferred to him. It's, when it was all brought to light, he resigned in the night after 17 years as the mayor. He actually resigned on Facebook. Have you ever heard of a mayor doing that? <laughs> hey, everybody, I'm not coming to work tomorrow. And, um, but the city still, they had a flimsy case that we owed him $32,000, which to us was A, not true, and B, we didn't have $32,000, but they were going to assert uh, kicking us out, which would stop not just our services, but probably the entire organization. And we had donors step up over the weekend and write us every one of those, a check for every bit of it, and I brought it on Monday morning. Here's your $32,000 to their shock and mine. And that stopped their action against us. Um, praise God that, that folks who had the means stepped up when they were called on. But that's not the same thing as confronting evil. That's really just paying them off. Uh, so we call it out. We call it out with increasing boldness because <clears throat> there's nothing to be gained by accommodating anymore. And the, the uh, you know, we're, we're not popular at City Hall. I always wanted to unite the City Council. I finally have. They all hate us. <laughs> you know what I found out, though, is in a pocket where I know that a, a small group of leaders are controlling and keeping resources from the folks that need them. Not only did I know that, but people at the state knew it and people at the federal knew it, people at major philanthropies and major businesses that wanted to do something, they all knew it too. And as we started to scale, <clears throat> we would approach them and we would say, hey, that grant program, can we apply for that? Because normally cities apply for that. And they're like, 
we have been, do you have any idea how long we've been waiting for someone from your community to try to access these funds? Yes. Or at the federal level, like you're thinking, can anything good come out of Washington, D.C.? I mean, I don't know. I'm not here to talk about that. But there are definitely staffers at the USDA or the Small Business Administration or the Economic Development Administration who are like, we want to place money into this underinvested community, but no one's ever applied. Or anytime we talk about it, the answer is no. So all of a sudden, we're pulling down major dollars from federal, state, local, major philanthropies, major corporations, uh, because we're able to quarterback the play for the region. Yes, sir. Yep. That's a, that, that's a great question. For those who didn't hear, you, you know, am I the Pope of Community Development Corporations? I, I mean, I hope so, but, uh, but no. Uh, there are about 5,000 around the U.S., and you have them here. Uh, they may not call themselves a CDC in their title, but uh, if you, if you uh, write, write on their front page when, about, we're a community development corporation. No, 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 no. This was actually created like in the 60s or 70s as a federal classification for 501c3s. And, you know, there's a million 501c3s in the U.S., so there's only like 5,000 CDCs. And um, uh, it's been kind of a slow movement. A lot of um, affordable housing builders are CDCs, but CDCs can do everything, like I've been talking about healthcare, economic development, housing, et cetera. And we do have like national associations, uh, but they're all independent and um, generally of a similar mindset. I think typically they kind of lean left. There's, they're aligned a lot with democratic cities and democratic partner, uh, policies, but it doesn't have to be that way. It's really, it's, it's a blank check um, or a blank structure. And uh, one that I think is underutilized because it, it when we're talking to a private equity source, we can sound and look like a private equity fund. When we're talking to a healthcare system, we can sound and look like a health uh, asset. And uh, we actually have lots of different brand names. We have like nine different brand names that we work under because when we're, when we're with any one of these siloed sectors that I've been talking about, they want us to look and feel and sound like them. That's how they write the checks. But when we're talking to a major, major player, we can roll that all up, aggregate it all up, and now we're a 70, you know, $7 million organization with 50 employees. Yeah, so it's, it's complicated, but so is poverty. And so a complicated answer to a bunch of systemic failures is, in our opinion, the way to go. And we're, all, we're now to a point where we're consulting and speaking to other groups when asked. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh, what's happening in Portland? Well, pull up a chair. I have so much to tell you about what's happening in Portland. And Wes, how, many, how much more time? We're done. Oh, okay. I can't tell you anything about Portland. <laughs> yeah, very briefly. Um, 
Yeah, let me just jump to, I think, one of the bottom, one of, one of the sources of hope I have. Within the Democratic Party, within the progressives, um, the most are sane people. They probably believe in government more than they ought, but they don't want to see the insanity that's going on. But they let the progressive wing call the shots for a while. And they enacted a lot of legal and financial um, reforms that are now bearing fruit. And that fruit does not look good. And they're quietly saying, what have we done? We need to stop having the extreme drive the agenda, and we need to recover more of a traditional liberal approach. Now, they'll never say that to a reporter, but that's what's happening. And our governor, um, Christ follower, but uh, out lesbian, uh, progressive, she quietly took a bill to legalize prostitution, which is something that the far progressive wing wanted, and just vetoed it. And her, her comment is, I, I got to stop this. We have got to pull ourselves back from the brink. Now, I think possibly everything I just said would apply on the right wing in other parts of the U.S. where the extremists might have had their day, and maybe they still have it, and maybe it's going to accelerate. I don't know. But I do know that there are smart, good men and women who are trying to pull it back and find that center that we seem to have lost. So I can at least offer you this, that on the progressive West Coast, what the hell are they all thinking? There is a similar movement. And uh, we, we view our role, we're not partisan. We have people on staff who are from all ranges of religious, uh, political, whatever. Uh, but we do view that reconciliation, that pulling back towards the center is something that we can do quietly and we're happy to do it.